Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. So welcome to today's episode of Come Follow Me from Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Shiloh Logan, and today we have a guest again, Christopher Hurtado. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Christopher is filling in for Ben today as Ben's birthday and for Thanksgiving weekend. So he had a lot of family in town. So thank you, Christopher, for being here. We are going to explore today the book of Moroni. So chapters one through six, but to get started. Now, Christopher, you and I have been talking for a good hour beforehand. We have a lot of stuff to say. There was this one thing before we got in that I wanted to contextualize and bring in something from last week. And that thing from last week that we talked about came from Ether 12. And the reason why I wanted to bring this back into play was it helped contextualize a few things as we're going to go back into Moroni chapter 6 and kind of get a flavor for who and what Moroni is. Because I think there's a lot of really good evidences here that you and I were talking about, about how to see who he is, how to see why he's writing. And I think there's even some evidence here. And something you said, Christopher, as we were talking just was like, wow. And I made a connection real fast to, to see a possible evolution of Moroni's way of thinking. So let's get into that. But in Ether 12, just as a recap from last week, is that Moroni is a very interesting fellow. There's a lot of evidences that he is very quick to defend his writing. And it's almost as if there is this sense that Moroni is very defensive of people believing what he has to say, because there's a lot of times where he will immediately jump in and will say, you know, and if you don't believe me, then at that point, we'll see how well you don't believe me at the judgment bar of God. <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like, well, there was a lot of uh, middle ground there, but I guess we can jump right into the judgment bar of God. But <laughs> he is very quick to really defend himself that way. And I think it has to do with a, a little bit of insecurity. And I think there's some insecurity there and I think there's some evidence for it. And the evidence that we have, there's at least two things that I found in chapter 12 of Ether. And the first thing is that, that Moroni is worried about his ability to write. He says, Lord, you've given the brother of Jared the ability of writing powerfully, but yet it's awkward for me. And he talks about this awkwardness of hand that he has, that he, it's, it's awkward for him to write. And he doesn't have the ability to write. And that he's afraid that the Gentiles in the future day are going to mock at him and to make fun of him and they won't believe what he's writing. And you can see how there's this sense of importance in he feels in what he's doing and that the people that he's writing it for aren't going to believe him. So in a sense, you're like, if you're Moroni, it's almost like, what's the point? Why am I even doing this? Am I the really the, the vessel that's supposed to do this? And you can see how there's this insecurity that's turning around, maybe this conversation of who and what Moroni is. And then the Lord comes out in verse 26 of Ether 12, and he says, Fools mock, but they shall mourn. And my grace is sufficient for the meek, that they shall take no advantage of your weaknesses. Now, last week we talked about how this verse 
But Ben and I thought about this in a particular way our whole lives, and it just came to us in a different way, really because of the Beatitudes. As if the Lord is saying, listen, Moroni, you've got to stop worrying about what's going to happen whenever this record comes to fruition, because it has nothing to do with you. You do what you need to do. You let Moroni be Moroni, and you let God be God. Okay? And so in this way, it's almost like he says, listen, fools are going to mock, but they shall mourn. Now, the way I've read that before is to say, well, if the Gentiles are going to mock at this, then they're going to get theirs in one day, right? Because they're mocking it, but one day they'll get punished, and then they're going to be crying, and they're going to mourn because they would have wished they would have listened to it, and in that way, they're going to be able to be punished, and you know what? Don't even worry about the people who are pointing fingers because they'll get theirs. But then I started reading this in a completely different way because there's a lot of evidence here that this is beatitude speak. Because we know that the second beatitude is to be mournful, to, to mourn, and that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the third beatitude is blessed are the meek. And so here in the verse 26, we see fools mock, but they shall mourn, and my grace is sufficient for the meek. And so in other words, this is a lot of the way that the Lord's telling Moroni, listen, Stop worrying about those people. That's not your concern. That's not why you're writing. You're writing for your own particular purpose that I have for you to write it. And I'm going to deal with them. And there's going to come a time where, yeah, in their ego, in their pride, in their natural man, they are going to mock. But there's going to come a time when they are poor in spirit and they release that and they empty that. And then they're going to mourn. Yes, fools mock but they're also going to mourn. And for them to mourn, that means they've had to let go. And in that state, they will be meek. And once they're in the state of meekness, then they will believe in your words. For me, this is a very reassuring cause for the Lord to tell Moroni, no, these people are going to eventually listen to what you have to say. Stop worrying about it so much. But the fact is, is that Moroni doesn't stop worrying. In fact, he continues on through the next several verses. And finally, he comes into like this concept of charity. And he says, Lord, the, I know everything that you've talked about charity before. How And the Gentiles aren't going to have charity. And if they don't have charity, how are they going to receive the words? And he gets worried about the Gentiles and their lack of charity. So finally, the Lord has to reassure Moroni yet again. And a little bit of almost maybe of a chastisement. Because in verse 37 of, 12, of chapter 12, it says, If they have not charity, Moroni, it mattereth not unto thee. Thou hast been faithful. Well, for thy garments shall be made clean. Almost as if, again, Moroni, you're too concerned about Moroni. If they don't have charity, that doesn't mean anything to you. You've got to deal with what you've got to deal with. Now, this chastisement for me is an amazing thing of seeing the Lord in a different way, because when the Lord chastises, it's a liberation. Because if the Lord did that to me, if I was in the same shoes as Moroni, and the Lord did that to me, and then I recognize that I don't have to worry about that. And the Lord's like, Shiloh, you're being too much God here. It's not about you. Shiloh, you just be Shiloh. You do Shiloh. I'm going to take care of you as you being Shiloh. And you let me be God. And all of a sudden, I don't have to worry about that. It's a chastisement that's also a liberation. And so I love this pattern of how God chastises to liberate, to uplift, to allow Moroni to just be Moroni. So finally, when we come in here into chapter one, Christopher, you brought in this really great point here, and uh, I want you to expound upon it. 
But it seems to be that Moroni may have taken what the Lord had said to heart. He's not worried about the future anymore. And in fact, when it starts to be that he comes around and he opens up chapter 1, Now I, Moroni, after having made an end of abridging the account of the people of Jared, I had supposed not to have written more, but I have not as yet perished. (laughs) Well, that's good. But I have not yet as yet perished, and I make not myself known to the Lamanites, lest they should destroy me. For behold, their wars are exceedingly fierce among themselves. Because of their hatred, they put to death every Nephite that will not deny the Christ, and I, Moroni, will not deny the Christ. So, Christopher, what was the thing that you uh, you had talked to me about here in verse 4? Expand upon that, would you? Yeah, so it's interesting to note in verse 4 that after he's just told us that he's avoiding the Lamanites because if he would come into contact with them, they would kill him. They're killing Nephites who will not deny Christ. And then he tells us he's going to write for them, for the Lamanites, and he calls them, he calls them his brethren. So they are, he, he feels hunted, he's hiding. He, he's worried that they'll kill him. The Lamanites will kill him, but he's not saying they're his enemies. He's saying they're his brethren. He's just stating the facts. They're killing Nephites who don't deny Christ. They're, um, I have to hide. But he's not saying they're his enemies. He's just saying they're my brethren. And so they're not listening right now, but I'd like to leave this record for them so that perhaps it may be of worth to them. And you said something about the doctrine of perhaps. I know you guys have been, you and Ben have been talking about that too. Yeah, the doctrine of perhaps is one of my favorite doctrine principles. It's really this idea that we, you know, when Christ calls us to suffer and sacrifice for each other, we often want to have it like a quid pro quo. We want to make sure that our suffering, our sacrifice means something, right? And so when we read stories like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's though, they go out and they prostrate themselves in front of their enemies. They're not doing it for any reason, outcome-based reason that they think that something is going to happen. All they're doing is they're witnessing and testifying of their own covenants and they're going out to meet their enemies. Whenever Ammon, and he, he concludes in Alma 26, and he says that, we went out just to go save a few of their souls, that perhaps we might. And again, it's that word perhaps again in Alma 26. It's not that we would already knew this in advance, and so therefore we just need to put in the time and the means and the effort and the labor to go do it. What it means is that they did it without any thought that they would even get a reward from it. Because a lot of the ways that we interact as human beings is we have this suffering sacrifice meaning narrative where we only want to suffer and sacrifice if there's a meaning at the end of it for us, or if there's something we get greater than it. Psychologically, this is the way we do things. Religious is the way we do things. Socially, this is the way that we do things. And yet, in these moments, you see them doing it, not because they have this absolute answer or they know what the end's going to look like, but just perhaps. And I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing because it also goes into the atonement and of Jesus Christ. And when we talk about Jesus Christ suffering and sacrificing for all mankind and for every individual, certain of these atonement theories, you have individuals who aren't going to ever take Christ up on his sacrifice, but he sacrificed for them nonetheless, that perhaps. So yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, the definition that we've been given of sacrifice is 
along the lines of giving up something of lesser value for something of greater value, when the Latin sacrus facere just means to make sacred. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they're going out, and you said meeting their enemies. I don't know that they were thinking of them as enemies, and perhaps you misspoke, you know, but it's like they're just going out and they're testifying, which I don't know if you've mentioned this on, on a previous episode, but I know that you know that to testify the same as to become a martyr. The roots of these words are related, that the idea of testifying and the idea of martyring or becoming a martyr are related. And so they're witnessing with their lives. They've turned their lives over to Christ. They have nothing to fear. They have no enemies. They are acting out of their conversion, not in some quid pro quo fashion. They are just acting out of the grace of God that they've received. Their works are the result of the grace of God in them. Yeah, I think this topic is going to come up again when we get into chapter six, but we have a cultural way of looking at this where we kind of look at our discipleship as starting with doing and that working our way into being. The Nephites, this was very much the Nephite way of doing things. And and in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about how the general Nephite MO is that you make an oath and a covenant, and then you stick to that. You live into the oath and the covenant. And so the oath and the covenant was shown as sacrosanct all the way back into the days of Zor, you know, Nephi with Zoram, right? When they're coming out of Jerusalem and Zoram swears by an oath that he won't run back to the people and he'll be there with them. And then they said, well, our fears did cease concerning him. And Hugh Nibley wrote a lot about the importance of the Jewish tradition of oath making. Like when you made an oath, that was the end of the conversation. That was never going to be broken again. They were very concerned with that. There is a different way of looking at things, such as in Mosiah 18, with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. There's another one with the, the Lamanites in Helaman 6, where they experienced a conversion first. They had an experience with God where, where they were converted first. And then the covenant that they made, the oath that they made afterward, was not one of these, I make an oath and then I live into it and I keep it, so much as I had this experience and then from the experience, I, I, I have this action now, I take this oath or I have this ordinance that represents the experience that I had. And now I just live into this experience every day because I come back to my experience. Yeah, you know, the, the childlike way, and Jesus says we have to become uh, like little children, the, the childlike way is to be, do, have. Our, our way, somehow we got that trained out of us and we become, our way becomes have, do, be. So a child, if a child wants to be a veterinarian, a child just going to be a veterinarian. And because he's being a veterinarian or she's being a veterinarian, she's going to pick up now the stethoscope. And if you're the family cat, you better run <laughs> because that child's going to do what, what, you know, veterinarians do. And then they have the Whatever it is you get out of being a veterinarian, right? Whereas we think I have to have a degree in veterinary medicine so that then I can do the things that veterinarians do. And then I, then I be a veterinarian in the end. Yeah, it's interesting the way that we turn that back around. And a lot of it with our discipleship is putting the cart before the horse. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong. There's nothing inherently wrong with making the oath and the covenant and then living into it like the Nephites did. But one of the things that we do learn from the Nephite way of doing it that way is that their conversion was never as deep 
or as long-lasting or as strong as it was when you had the experience first, and then you lived into the experience, and then the experience just was something that you referenced back to because it had become something you already were. In a lot of ways, with the way that we do things now, we come in and we're baptized, we make these covenants, and then we have this concept of walking the covenant path. We, we continually reference back to the oath, the covenants that we make, as that becomes, we, come, we reference back to the oath itself, as opposed to referencing back to the experience and the conversion that then the oath and the symbol represented. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that inherently. I think so long as we recognize what's going on, and so long as we recognize what's going on, then that gives us the ability of then focusing on actually having the experiences of conversion as opposed to just experiencing the ordinances as though that were the thing in and of itself. So for instance, you know, when we're baptized, baptism is symbolic. It's symbolic of the body being buried down into the de- into chaos and oblivion and it coming up as a brand new thing. And so in our lives, what are what are the actual experiences of our lives? that baptism symbolizes. With the sacrament, partaking of the sacrament is a beautiful experience. And we're going to talk about that some more here in chapters four and four and uh, five. But with the sacrament, that's a beautiful experience to, to partake of that symbol. But what is the experience in our lives that we are supposed to have that that symbolizes? And maybe we can talk about that a little bit more too. So yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with walking the covenant path. Of course, you walk the covenant path. The question is, can you walk the covenant path and it be just going through the motions to some degree? In all the religious traditions, I think there's this idea of the inner and the outer, the esoteric and the exoteric. You have the law, you have the you know canonical prayers or whatever rites and performances you're supposed to do. And then there's the, there's the more mystical side of the religion. There's the inner aspect of it. You can perform all the rituals and not have your heart in it, not be present to what you're doing to the degree that that would have you be present to God, to have you be present to that God is present to you. You can see where you really need both the esoteric and the exoteric. Um, you need the inner and the outer experience, both together. Yeah, so long as there's that marrying and there's that relationship between the two. In the Beatitudes speak, it's Christ coming out and saying, hey, you're the salt of the earth. It's this, are we actually experiencing the gospel? Or are we just checking boxes? Is going to church and partaking of the sacrament there, that's a beautiful thing. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. In fact, Christ institutes the sacrament and Christ, he's the one who actually brings this about, right? This is the last thing he does with his disciples as he institutes and he talks about the sacrament. Yeah, not only is there nothing wrong with it, it's required, right? He institutes it and he requires it of us. It's uh, We're commanded. I think it says that in this week's reading we're discussing, you know, that we're commanded to do these things. But how do we do them? How much of it is checking off a box or how much are we invested in it at, at the level of not just renewing our covenants. I was going to say renewing our covenants, right? Because again, that can go back to checking off boxes, right? But to actually be converted, right? To be converted, to be repentant, to see God for who and what he is, to seek him in that moment, to find him and to become one with him in our repentance, 
and in keeping our, our covenant and renewing our covenants and in and actually in keeping with his commandment to partake of the sacrament, all of it together. Yeah, because in that way, when I talk about renewing my covenants, it's for me, it's no longer because what it has been for me most of my life in renewing my covenants is going back to mentally going through the list of the things I'm supposed to do. That's what it means for me to renew my covenants. It's like, okay, I I, did, I messed up this week on these things that I these rules that I broke, these things that I messed up in. I sinned. Like there's a standard. I didn't live the standard. I broke the standard. You know, I bent it maybe a little bit. Maybe sometimes I just darn near broke the whole thing off. And so in that way, I come back, I reapproach, and I recommit to living the standard. The way that I look at it now in coming back and reaffirming those covenants is that the sacrament now is now an experience that I'm now brought into a moment of unity with God, that in those few seconds, through that action of partaking of the bread and the water, that I'm actually brought into this relationship and into the sacred moment where I'm asking and petitioning God to be involved in who and what he is. That as I remember him, that that I'm brought into that relationship. And that then spills over into the rest of my week. And when I've made that that switch, that mental switch to where I look at the sacrament as an experience, as opposed to like an intellectual endeavor, that I look at it as an experience that pours over into my week. It's really radically changed that moment for me. Then making sure that I'm living that sacrament every single week. In chapter one, the one thing that I wanted to bring up before we moved on to chapter two. Actually, can I say something? Yeah, go for it. It's an opportunity to taste God. And when I say that, it's not a pun on, on partaking of the flesh of God as a symbol, right? I mean, in the sense that the that the Islamic mystics, the Muslim mystics, the Sufis speak of the experience of God as tasting God. We take it as a remembrance, right? And in, and in that tradition, remembrance is called dhikr, which is a, this idea of this constant prayer of the heart of remembering God. And in that moment that we, that we partake of the sacrament, we are remembering God. And we are therefore having an experience or a taste of God. Yeah, especially when we get to chapter four. I know you and I had talked about before when I had said, hey, let's talk about cannibalizing God. And you're were, and you like, all right, maybe you're just saying that to, to be edgy. And I'm like, no, literally, let's talk about the, you know cannibalizing God and what that means. So I think getting into that again in, in chapter four. You really had to say cannibalizing. You, I really could be a little less controversial. <laughs> okay. I really did. I had to say it. So it, now that I've said it, maybe I'll just say it one, one or two more times, just to just for dramatic emphasis. <laughs> yeah, this is something that that is present in, and I think in all religious traditions too. This goes back before the time of Christ, you know, and it's something that's brought in here. I know you're going to go into John. Yeah, because the early Christians thought that this whole thing was really weird. So the disciples, yeah, we'll get into John six and about how that was and how that was administered and. Some talk about the cross. That'll, that'll be really great. In chapter one here, the one thing that I just wanted to bring out was that in in verse two, when he says that because of the Lamanites' hatred, they put to death every Nephite that will not deny the Christ. And I, Moroni, will not deny the Christ. I had never really thought about it before, but who's he talking about? Who are these other people that are not denying the Christ? 
Because it kind of sounds like with the destruction that we get back in Mormon was that there were only like 20 people that were left, 20, 24 people that were left. Are those the 24 that they're talking about? But it seems to be that there were some people that Moroni was aware of, some people who had lived the gospel that who believed in Christ who were running running away. So that they actively were hunting down people. And like, who were these people that the Lamanites were hunting down? How do you see someone just walking down the street and like, do you interrogate them? And just do you interrogate everybody that you're running into and, and having them specifically deny Christ? Or <laughs> I don't know exactly how that works. But in my mind, as I've always read the Nephite record, it was that Moroni was the very last Nephite. He was the one wandering and the only one around. That may still, that may, that may be the case. You know, he did, he's saying this in the past tense, right? Could be in the past tense. At least it could be read in the past tense. I think it could be in the past tense. When I was reading here and it said they put to death every Nephite, not that they have put to death. Well, he's not saying they are putting to death either, right? I guess so. So I guess, yeah, it could be in the past tense or it could be in the present tense. So just a little bit of uh, ambiguity there where I'd only seen absolute before. There seems to be a little bit more ambiguity if we read it in that context. Either way, we do know that Moroni is by himself. And so he doesn't know of anybody else's else's situation there. So so in moving into chapter two, now, Christopher, you and I had a conversation about disciples and apostles. Right. Because there is a little bit of ambiguity here that uh, that might be a little bit confusing. In verse one, it says that the words of Christ, which he spake unto his disciples, the twelve whom he had chosen, as he had laid his hands upon them, and he called upon them by name, saying, You shall call on the Father in my name in mighty prayer, and after you have done this, you shall have power, that to him upon whom you shall lay your hands, you shall give the Holy Ghost, and in my name shall you give it. For thus do mine apostles. All right, so there's this ambiguity here, because now we're talking about disciples and apostles. So is he switching back and forth between the disciples and apostles? What's the distinction? So the quick distinction is this, is that Jesus Christ called his 12 apostles in Israel, in the Holy Land. So those are his original 12 apostles that he called while in his earthly ministry. When he came in his earthly ministry to the the people in the Americas, he did not call an additional 12 apostles. Instead, he called 12 disciples. They were specifically called. Now, for me, maybe I've got to learn a lot more here, but I've always thought that disciples here should have been capitalized as a distinction of those 12 specific people, because disciple is also a term that's used for simply a person who follows after a particular thing. It's like the root of discipline. Now, Christopher, you're going to get into the etymology here, and you're going to tell us a lot more about the etymology here. But at least for apostles and disciples, I've always thought that maybe those should be capitalized because they're talking about those specific people. But you went back to the original, your facsimile of the original uh, Book of Mormon, and it's not capitalized there either. So I don't know what's going on there. Well, I, yeah, I looked at the I looked at the 1828 edition and facsimile, and then the the earliest text that Yale published that Royal Skousen came up with. So if we read it the way you're reading it, though. He's saying, thus do mine apostles. Are we saying that they're actively doing this now as Jesus uh, as Jesus speaks when he spoke it, which is not at the time of Moroni, obviously. He's telling us what happened, when it happened. But are we saying that after Jesus is has died and has been resurrected and is appearing to the Nephites, that at that time his apostles are doing these things? Because otherwise it would say, as my apostles did. And so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I, you know, when you first pointed this out to me, I thought, okay, yeah, 
He's distinguished between these disciples in the Americas and those apostles in the old world. Whereas I thought that there were that the the author that Moroni here is just using disciples and apostles interchangeably. You convinced me, and now I'm not so convinced anymore. But there is a distinction between disciples and apostles, and I think as long as the disciples that he calls in the Americas aren't acting as apostles, then your interpretation stands, right? So a disciple is one who is really the roots are disco, right? Disquere is to learn. And the rest of the word comes from puer, which means boy. And so these are boy learners. They're little, they're 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 like children in their in their position, they're pupils. And in fact, it's related, you can compare it to the Sanskrit word putras, which uh, in English is foal, which is, what is a foal? It's a, a, baby a horse, horse of either gender, less than two years old, right? Something like that. So, and then an apostle is someone who's sent far away. That word breaks down again into two. And, and so that's someone who's sent far away. And so the, the, I know the apostles in the old world were sent out to spread the gospel if you're saying that there are only 12 total and these disciples who are 12, by the way, well, there are 12, he's calling 12, 12 more, but you're saying not more because they're not apostles. Are they also not sent out then? Yeah. These disciples were supposed to be witnessing to the people there of the Americas, right. just to those specific people called in that specific location, right? Well, not, but in you say in the Americas, I mean, the others were in Europe. Okay. Maybe they crossed uh, over into Asia because they're, they're right there in the in between. Are these guys just working right there locally, or are they being sent out to spread the gospel too? Because there are 12. Yeah, the apostles were were meant to spread out, right? So mm-hmm. we have them yeah. going down into Africa and going up into Europe and going right. over into Asia and all over the place. Whereas these disciples in the America, they stay right there with the people. Yeah, and our apostles today also go throughout the world. And these disciples say, so that, you know, so then your reading stands. But it's interesting to note what's going on here, right? And to distinguish between the disciples, the 12 he has chosen among the Nephites and his apostles in the old world and what they're up to, what they've been called to do. So in chapter three, you brought up a really interesting juxtaposition because of disciples there. So it, meaning it's, it's actually a child, right? So it's more of like a child learner. Well, yeah, you're talking about a pupil, right? Yeah. And it's, again, it's a, a child learner boy who's, you know, who's just learning. And here you have this fun juxtaposition, right? Because the manner in verse one, we read the manner which the disciples who were called the elders of the church. So the elders, the ones who were supposed to be old wise men, right? The bearded old wise men are just children who are learning. And that's so delicious to me. It really is. Isn't that a great juxtaposition? I love that. That disciples with the elder, it always talks about, I was in this group. um, I I attended a weekly conference once where they had mentioned a group of Buddhist monks that had come in. These were some of the highest echelon of Buddhist monks. I, I don't know the title or where they come from, but they were very prominent. And when they came into this discussion, when they'd gone through this program, they came up to the the discussion leader and they said that we are going to be here with a with a childlike understanding, with a beginner's mind. And I absolutely loved that when it was told about how they come into this experience with a beginner's mind, with no preconceived notions, with no expectations, with no pride or haughtiness that they know something. 
that they've thought this already. They're going to empty their whole ego out and simply be here for the moment and the experience of what was there to be present in that meeting. And I thought, man, what an amazing way to live. What an amazing way to live where you don't feel like you have all of the answers and that you have to defend all of the answers. That you can simply be there in the present moment with whoever you're with and simply see who and what they are as human beings. You don't have to bring all the baggage of life with you. It's just, it's in that moment, that experience with that human being. So when you're talking about these disciples here, who are the leaders, yeah, it's this imagery of like the first is the last and the last is the first and about how a child will lead them, right? We have this uh, these scriptures about how children will lead the, the kings and the queens and and about how the, the most the most prominent among you will be the child. So yeah, great imagery there. Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? Buddhist practice you mentioned is a well-known Buddhist practice. It reminds me of what I was saying earlier about the sacrament, because you want to come to the sacrament as though it's your first time taking the sacrament. And that makes me think of the night of my baptism. If I could come back to that moment when I was newly baptized, every time I take the sacrament, I can do that. Yeah, it's an amazing thing, especially with baptism and focusing in my life on the exper- experiencing my baptism has been a revolutionary thing for me. Because then I actually go out to look for moments in my life where I will never be the same person again. Once I recognized that the actual experience in life that my baptism symbolized was to actually go out there and to experience my baptism and to go out there and to have those experiences where you will never be the same person again. And that the new you is completely open to life and sees God in a new way. Yeah, those are the experiences I crave now. So, I mean, that's a great segue here into verse three as well, because it says that after they had prayed unto the Father in the name of Christ, they laid their hands upon them and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ordain you to be a priest, or if you be a teacher, I ordain you to be a teacher, to teach repentance and remission of sins through Jesus Christ by the endurance of faith in his name to the end. It was after that manner that they did call and ordain priests and teachers according to the gifts and callings of God. And then it gets into, and then we'll get into the sacrament from there. But this repentance we've talked a lot about as the process of seeing God in a new way. You know, the earliest Bible dictionary talks about repentance in that radical new way. It's not just that, hey, you done screwed up, and so now you need to get forgiveness for it, which, sure, it's that. that that's a piece of the pie. But that we talk about that piece of the pie as if that's the whole pie. And it's just not. <laughs> it's just not. Because the, the rest of the pie is about how we had those actions because we had not yet recognized who and what we already were. We didn't recognize that we are already children of deity. As Christ said, ye are gods. Not you shall be, not that anything, not the future tense, it's ye are gods. It's, it is a present reality for us. We have just not woken up to that fact. And because we haven't woken up to that fact, we act counter what we really are. And that's sin. Because we see through lenses darkly, because we don't see who and what we really are, because we keep the views of the natural man that we're born into, 
call it our language, call it our culture, call it any layers of identity that cause this to be. Well, it's the fall. It's the it's the dualism, right? Yeah, that dualism. Yeah, speak to the dualism, Christopher, because you have some really great ways of being able to express that dualism, that that fall of nature and the dualism from from what it is. And this gets into the tree of life narrative as well. Well, what I see here is you were you dwelt with God in the presence of God in God's kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus teaches is within you. So the kingdom of God is within you, he says. And now you've left that paradise. You've got you've separated yourself from God. You've start to, you've started to think of yourself in terms of other identities as as you've said other than God, which is what Jesus said you are. God just as he is and that he said that we should become one with him even as he and the father are one which again is not this is the opposite one is the and 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 dualism are opposites right they're clear opposites if you're if you're in dualism you're not one you're separate from god and i think of what thomas merton says or was it richard Rohr? Our Thomas Merton, we'll, we'll call Richard Rohr our Thomas Merton. He's, he's our living Thomas Merton. This, this you that you are, this false self that's not God, God doesn't know. Who is that? That's not the real you. That's some other identity that you've taken on that isn't him, that isn't you as one with him. And Christ. Yeah, that really gets into the Sermon on the Mount when Christ says that I never knew you. Depart, you know, that whole depart from me, you that work in iniquity, right. I never knew you. It was, yeah, it's you live in that false self, and that false self is God saying, I don't know that alter ego. I don't know that false, that false image of yourself that you're no. talking about. That's not who you are. No, when he looks at me, he knows himself. Knowing myself is how to know God because I am God. This is what Jesus taught me. I am God. I am to become one with him and the Father as they are one. I am to know myself, and to know myself is to know God. I am made in his image, in imago Dei, in the image of God. He created me in his own image. What am I seeing? That's what he sees. What am I seeing? I'm seeing something else. That's a false self. He doesn't know anything about that false self. That's not who he sees when he looks at me. What are you talking about? We've we've had the experience as parents, haven't you, Shiloh, of, of our children, you know, thinking of themselves, expressing, talking about themselves in a certain way where you think, no, that's not who you are. And you tell them, that's not how I see you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, all the time. Well, it's the same with our Father in heaven. We are his children, created in his image. He sees us for who we are, as already one with him. We've separated ourselves from him. He has not separated himself himself from us. Gosh, if we could just see that, and if we could just see ourselves for who we are, we'd know God. That's it. This, again, it, it, it really does show up. I, 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 I think this shows up in all the religious traditions. I've seen it. This idea that to know yourself is to know God. This is what Dante was saying. This is this is what Augustine was saying. This is what the Sufis saying are saying. This is what Al Ghazali wrote in the Alchemy of Happiness. Are you looking for the beatific vision? Do you want to see the face of God? Look inside you, deep inside you. It's there. This reminds me when 
we know that the two greatest commandments is to love God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Mm. Right? And so we have this first things first, realize, and this is comes into like first John four, we talk about we love because God loved us first. We have the awareness and the recognition of this because God brought this first. We we came into that relationship and that that awareness because of God's love to realize that we're always encompassed in that love. He's the one that makes himself real, and he's the one who makes himself present. He's the one who reveals himself as that God of love. And it's in that moment then when we look to in within ourselves and we have we we create the images of that false self, and we've got to, we've just got to let that go. And it's hard for us then to let that go and see ourselves until we've we, we've seen that God and come into that that moment with that God. And, and you know, when I've talked about prayer, uh, Riley and I had recorded in uh, an episode coming out with Latter-day Contemplation about prayer, and we talked about silent prayer. And silent prayer for me has been an exercise where I've I've been experimenting with just letting go and praying without even using words. That's a completely different experience mm-hmm. <laughs> where you just pray in silence, where you trust and you come to God trusting that he knows the intentionality of you coming to him without words. Yeah. You know, it, it's trusting in what the Sermon on the Mount says that God knows what you require before you even ask of him. And so the experiment of praying without words is the trust in that and, and the intentionality of trusting God. I'm coming to you without words, trusting that you know this about me. And I'm just going to sit here in silence mm. and hope that my my intentionality of being here with you is sufficient for you to be able to witness and to pour into me what I need to know and what I need to be right now. Oh, man, I feel it. And so in that moment to trust that there is a kind, loving, proactive God on the other side of that conversation. Yeah. And as I've practiced that, sometimes there's there's nothing. And sometimes there comes something. And as I've spoken about it before, I've come to learn to love the nothing. That when I'm sitting there and I'm just in that moment, that even though I don't consciously pick up on something, that I'm like, oh, there's God. When I get up and I then go on to the next part of my day and I begin to move, it's like that moment comes with me. And I'm now in this relationship with God where he continually fills me and it's it's so subtle. It is so subtle. And, and if, I, if I'm not conscious of it, if I don't keep on coming back into remembrance of it, I'll forget that it's even there. But I start to, the DNC 121, it talks about... Uh, let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly, and the doctrines of the kingdom will, will dispel upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. It doesn't come in a deluge. It comes so subtly as just dew on a, on, a, on a blade of grass, where you weren't really expecting it. You can't really time the fact, you can't really time the point when it happened, but you see the results of it nonetheless. And so when we get into the sacrament here and we start talking about the sacrament, about being in remembrance of God, that's what that is for me, that experience of coming into that remembrance. It's the remembering of this relationship that I'm trying to bring myself in with the Lord. And so you talked about, but staying in chapter three in verse three, Christopher, we talked about repentance as that coming into that new awareness and being with God, but the remission of sins. 
this is a really interesting word combination, the remission of sins, especially when we look at it more from a contemplative, transformative way as opposed to the transactional way that we're used to talking about it. But when we talk about a remission of sins, how is this remission of sins for you? Because you brought up the etymology, the, the definition of remission. How is this for you when we talk about, because we talk about sin as metaphysical, as, as if a lot of the times culturally, and you and I don't see it that way. And we've had conversations about this where we don't see like sin is this metaphysical or worthiness as a metaphysical aspect, more of an epistemological one, which is a fancy word for just meaning perception as opposed to reality of perception. I'm sorry, metaphysical, which is your reality versus epistemological, which is your perception of reality. Right. So how, how do you see remission of sins here? Well, first, since we're talking about the remission of sins, well, okay, you, you asked me about the remission of sins in general just now, but first you had said remission. I think first we go to sins, right? What does sin mean to you? Let me put the ball back in your court. Let's say what sin is first, and then we can talk about what a remission of sins is. Okay, so if we're going to talk about sin in the transactional way, in the way that Paul talks about it, is kind of the typical way we, we do it is that there is no sin unless there's law. Law is a standard, it's a rule, and sin is the action of breaking that rule or not following it. For me, in a more of a transformational way, that the way that more of the contemplatives or mystics might talk about it, is that sin is an action that derives from the false self. So we are always already worthy. But we don't act that way because we're not aware of that yet. We don't know, right? This is what we mean by epistemologically speaking. We don't know, yeah, we don't know. who we really are. Right. And and the knowing for me is not a mental exercise. It's become more of an experiential one. Where truth is not necessarily so much a propositional statement that is correct as it is there is this experience that I've been brought into an experience of God. And so now let me teach you. And now let me express the experience that has been had you can be brought into this as well. Yeah. And so I look at sin now. There was uh, someone who on social media where I had posted something about always already being worthy, like I have on the podcast. And they said, and, and they were being antagonistic. And they said, okay, so if I go out and I, I sexually abuse somebody, I'm always already worthy? Yes. And the answer is yes, you are. You obviously don't know you are at that point. That's exactly right. <laughs> you don't know that you are. Or you wouldn't have done you it. You don't know that you are. Or you wouldn't have right. done it. That's exactly right. Right. You're not acting this uh, in a way that, that, that shows that you know who you are. You don't know who you are. You've really missed the mark when it comes to, you know, treating other people <laughs> as uh, do unto others as you would have done unto them as Jesus and Muhammad and the Buddha taught, right? You've really missed the mark. And that's what, that's what the Greek word that we translate sin means. Hamartia. It means missing the mark. There's sort of this, I don't know, sin just carries so much, what is it, Shiloh? There's a lot that it carries. What are you, what yeah, for? right? Right. So I, I'd like to sort of back away from that a minute and just say, what does this word mean, hamartia? It's missing the mark. You've missed the mark. You, you were told to treat people, uh, you know, do unto others as you would do unto them. And now you've gone and raped someone. You really miss the mark by a wide margin, by the way. And you can miss the mark by a narrow margin, too. But you've missed the mark. And so you want to bring your actions back into alignment with who you are, who you really are. This is the idea. And so that's what we mean by remission, right? It's a restoration. 
it's to restore you back to a knowledge of yourself, this knowledge of the self that we've been talking about that gives you access to God, the God that you are, that he, that he said that you are, uh, that he is. I am that I am, he says. We're talking about restoring you to yourself, to your true self. That's what we mean by a remission of your sins. This, for me, is really the good news of Jesus Christ. Once I started to recognize how God is more perfectly in this love, and how God calls us to be in this moment of love with him, as if God is in love with me and I am in love with God. Yeah, I've told the story a thousand times about being on my mission and about acting because we loved president. We were obedient, not because we were keeping the rules. And we, when we, there were rules and, and we wanted to double down on the rules because if we obeyed, by, if we obeyed the rules, then God was going to bless us. You know, this transactional, I do this, God's going to do this. But we entered into a way of being as missionaries because of the mission president loved us so much that we loved him so much, we just were. And I think this is where Christians actually get grace probably better than we do culturally. Now, we are Christians, Shiloh. Mainstream Christians. Mainstream Christianity. Okay. <laughs> get it better than we Evangelicals, do. maybe? Evangelicals, sure. Where they're not talking, they're talking about works as in a lot of ways, after the grace. It's that which comes after conversion. They're the fruit of conversion. Yes, works is the fruit of conversion. Whereas we look at works as the means to conversion. Doesn't that go along with your what you said about the Nephites, the Nephite way of going about it? Yeah, ex that's exactly right. Yeah, whereas what I was saying about the, um, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's is that their actions were a fruit of their conversion. This is exactly what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's exactly right. Now, there are some ways that evangelicals and they will take grace and they will take that discussion that uh, I, I won't take that. I don't take that discussion that way because I, I take it a different way. So there are differences, that's to say. But that they really do, I believe, take a, a firmer foundation in grace than we do that is far more consistent with the transformational way of seeing God. Now, that said, in this remission, it's coming into an awareness again, coming back into the conversation, coming back into the presence of God. Not because we ever left God. And I think as a culture, what we've done is that we've really made God like this sea anemone. Have you ever been with a sea anemone out to like a, a tide pool pond where you touch a sea anemone and it sucks back into its shell really fast? I, I've done this a hundred times. So you go I out haven't. there. Haven't you done this? Okay. This is, this is an interesting <laughs> analogy. Oh, this All is right. good. So, so you touch a sea anemone and it sucks back into its shell really fast. It's sensitive. It doesn't want to be there. We talk about God this way around sin. Like, like God can't look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And, and you know, we drive the spirit away whenever we listen to bad music or we swear or we, we sin or we do something else. We, we drive God away. And at some point, I started to recognize and think, what a pathetic God. What a pathetic weakling God who is so sensitive to this stuff that it drives him away. And I'm like, no, if anything, what's happening is I'm simply tuning myself off to the magnificence and the love of God that already always surrounds me. You're the one who's driving away. He's, he's never moving away from you. Yeah, it's the whole concept of the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The right. light is everywhere. 
And I'm simply staring up at the sun at noonday saying it doesn't exist. That doesn't change the fact that God's there. He's the presence, the light of Christ. All of that is around me, that that God is in this. Yeah, you just got to take off your headphones and hear him. That's right. Instead of what the music you were, uh, to which you referred. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I know you like that music, Shiloh. Oh, I, I, you know what? There's, there's a lot of rock and roll that uh, I probably need to repent for. And so do I. Of course. But, but no, the question is, you know, can we hear him, right? I mean, okay, so there comes a time to uh, turn for that, that silent contemplative prayer. For for the the opportunity to hear him, and I'm sure you know you and I are not you know we're not ascetic mystics. Well, because we are listening to the music, we are not always in remembrance of God, and that's a worthy goal. But we're not there yet. Yeah, definitely not there yet. And 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 we know, and we know, and I think I don't, I don't want to go away from the, your point. I think your point is that whenever we choose to listen for God, He'll be there. He's waiting for us to listen to Him. He hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah. I mean, how can how can the kingdom of God that is within you go anywhere? You may not be you, sorry, you may not be aware of it, right? But it's there. Right where Jesus said it would be. Or right where Jesus said it is. I think that's my favorite part of Alma's conversion story. When he's talking in Alma 36 in verse 18. Well, it's it really starts in 19. It says, And when it came to pass that when I had thus was racked with torment while I was harrowed up in the memory of my many sins. Behold, I remembered to have heard my father prophesy concerning this one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. Beautiful, isn't it? Right. And then in 18, it says, and now is my mind caught a hold upon this thought. It was just, I just had this thought. As opposed to the other thoughts he was having, the, the racked with torment thoughts. That's right. Yeah, the, the ones that he was tormenting himself. That's with. all he had to do. It's all he had to do was tune in. That's it. Yeah, all he had to do was stop listening to the accuser. Right? Hasatan, That's all it was. This, uh, what we call Satan, the accuser. Yeah. Turn the accuser off. O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me, who am in the gall of bitterness and am encircled about by the everlasting chains of death. And now, behold, when I thought this, when I thought this, That's it. I could remember my pains no more. Amen. I was harrowed up by my, the memory of my sins no more. And oh, what joy and what marvelous light did, did I behold for my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. I can feel it, Shiloh. It's right there. Yeah. It's just, it's that moment. It's the awakening. It's, it's the realization that once you just come into that immediate presence of God, you come into the, just the recognition of calling into it, you tune right into the channel, that thing that is always already right there. Beautiful. See that for me, when it says to preach repentance a remission of sin through Jesus Christ by the endurance of faith on his name to the end. That's what that experience is. I think the audience really should, at this point, they should just tune us out and go listen to God. <laughs> Maybe come back later. If, I don't know. Just come back later. Put it on pause. Walk away. <laughs> just sit with it for a while. Yeah. I think this is a beautiful segue, too, into the sacrament. Because it's taking this whole discussion of what they're doing into the sacrament. Because once we sit down here with the sacrament and we just hear the prayer, the, the spoken prayer, O oh God, the Eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and to sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it. They may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son and witness unto thee 
O God, the Eternal Father, that they're willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, and always remember him, and keep his commandments which he has given them, that they may always have his Spirit to be with them. Amen. Amen. You know, what a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful way to be able to supplicate to God this coming into this relationship. What the once we realize that we've tapped into this, like Almond, we've tapped into this knowledge that God is always there present in loving us and being there with us. We simply ask him and petition him and say, Lord, can we please come into this relationship that we remember this? That we remember the body of thy son and that we witness. Now, witness. This is a fascinating word here to be witnessing. Witnessing of what? Why is this word witness here? That we're going to witness of this? Unto God. We're going to bear testimony to God. Right. When he already knows us. Yeah, this is an interesting placement of the word witness. What are we witnessing? And to who are we is witnessing? Is it ourselves we're witnessing and therefore God? I think this is a self-declaration. This is our coming into an awareness of who and what God is. This is my I am that I am moment. Yeah. The recognition of who and what we already are. That taking upon ourselves the name of thy son, which is Jesus Christ. We learn in Mosiah 5, there is no other name other than Christ. And that anointed one to be anointed and to set apart as, as, a, as a king and queen. The self-sacrificial God. God did not come to kill. He came to be killed. He came to show us through his self-sacrifice what it means to be God. For God so loved the world that he came to destroy the world? No. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That God became flesh. That he came to this life to demonstrate and to show us what it was to be human. To what it was to be, to live this life. Of all, in our LDS theology, we have a very specific view that we are the offspring of God. In Orthodox Christianity, it's that God is this kind of undefined entity without body parts or passion, but he made himself incarnate in the image of us human beings, to show us human beings. He could have made, he could have been a burning bush at one point. He could have been a cloud. He could have been anything. Maybe he could have been a fish, but he made himself flesh to show us what it was to be human beings. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we believe that we are now in the literal family of God. And that really should drive home a much deeper point of who and what God is and what it means for Jesus Christ to take upon himself the mortal tabernacle and for us to be able to follow him and to realize that he is the archetype of our humanity. So that by taking upon ourselves his name, we covenant that we are entering into the conversation and the conversion of who and what Christ is. The name Christ. You can't see it, but I'm putting Christ in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and, and what does that look like to be a Christian, right? Well, that's why we have the Sermon on the Mount, right? That's why we have the Beatitudes. That's the central teachings of Jesus Christ. This reminds me too, because we have a commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the, the Lord thy God in vain. Looking, looking more closely at that, looking into it, um, into the into the, uh, the the Hebrew, you're, what you're really dealing with here is, thou shalt not take upon thyself the name of the Lord in vain. That's what it's really saying. So, when we when we say we're going to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, if we if we are not to do it in vain, 
if we're to keep that commandment, not to take the name of the Lord thy God upon yourself in vain, which by the way, doesn't mean that, that, uh, that the, maybe the understanding that, that listeners have had all along, you know, that you shouldn't, um, profane the name of God isn't valid. That is valid too, of course, because if you're taking upon yourself the name of, uh, of Christ, you're not going to profane the, the name of God. But what we're really dealing with here in this commandment is not taking upon yourself the name of God in vain. And so if you're taking upon yourself the name of uh, Christ, then you're a Christian. And what does that, what, what now is the fruit of that? Are you converted to Christ? Or are you taking, are we converted to Christ or are we taking upon ourselves his name in vain? Because if we're converted to Christ, then we live as Christians. And that's not the same thing as living as Romans. Uh, the Romans had a, an idea of, of uh, victory, of peace, rather, of peace through victory. The Pax Romana, we're going to conquer and, well, kill those who oppose us uh, until we've conquered all, and then we'll have peace. And Jesus says, no, I, I don't kill, I die, and I win. And you think, wait, how does that work? And the answer is, well, you start by by faith, right? By faith. By walking in faith, by stepping out into what you think is darkness, because you see through a glass darkly and you do not comprehend the light, but what is but but it's really the light, the love of God, the love that, as Dante put it, that moves the star the sun and, and the other stars, that fills the the entirety of the universe. And you begin to comprehend it through faith, through action. Faith is a principle of action. Only by, ta- only by acting, only by taking that first step. You can hold to the rod. This goes back to the idea I was, I was saying earlier about the inner and the outer. That outer part is the word of God, right? The law. The word of God is the law. So you can hold to that rod, but you have to walk the path. The path is the esoteric, right? This is acting. This is the faith, the action of being Christ-like, of following in his footsteps, of following his teachings, the ones that maybe make no sense. Love your enemies? And look, maybe, maybe you can intellectualize the idea that if you would love them, they would not be enemies, but you see them as enemies now, so how do you do that? And the answer is, well, even if you feel like you're fumbling in the darkness, you hold to the rod, you, you have faith and you, and you walk the path, holding to the rod, the esoteric and the exoteric, the inner and the outer, the law and, and the way, right? The truth and the way. And what do you get? The life. The life of a Christian is what we're talking about. The life of a Christian is, the right? Jesus says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. You bring the three together. That's what it means to be a Christian. You know, a couple of things you had uh, you talked about reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Preston Sprinkle from his book Fight. Okay. Where it says that if you haven't begged God for waterfalls of grace to love your local rapist, who is also your enemy and desperately needs Jesus, if you aren't perplexed at the power of martyrdom as the very means by which God conquers the devil— If you aren't bewildered by Jesus' example and his insistence that you too turn the other cheek and never retaliate with evil for evil, forgive the one who's beating your face in, 
against all human logic, against all cultural norms, and against your own inner sense of justice, then the cross may not appear as scandalous as it should. Hmm. Preston has a way with words, doesn't he? He really does. His book is full of such quotes. It's a great book. I love this as a segue into what we're talking about here because you know I did talk about the cannibalism of God, and and it's a very sensational way of putting that. But when Jesus introduces this in John six, and he introduces this whole eating my flesh and drinking my blood, he's not mincing words. In fact, unless no. there's any ambiguity, he like repeats himself in like five different ways just so that he drives home the point that you're literally drinking my blood and you're literally eating my flesh. In, unless you want to think of it as non-cannibalistic, it is cannibalistic. And he really gets into this, right? And so abrupt was this conversation in John 6 that in verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. <laughs> They're like, wait, 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 wait. You know what? I can follow you with, with bread and fishes and the whole sermon thing. and and you know, But hey, you lost me with this one. And I love that Jesus looks at this point and he looks at his, his apostles and he says, will you also go away? Simon Peter's answer to this, Peter's answer to this, has really become one of my own mantras through my life. Whenever I've come across a moment that I just, I'm just like, God, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of my tether here and I don't know what more to do. When he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Hmm. I love what Peter's saying here is, is like, Lord, I have no idea what you're talking about. And this is crazy. I have no idea what, where you're going with this. And yeah, I get why they're leaving. John leaves out the gulp, you know. It, it was probably gulp, Lord. Right. Right. <laughs> In his verse 69, and Lord, we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here we have jo Peter in John who is coming to this realization of saying, you know what, I don't know what this thing is as you're talking about, but here in verse 4, and, and this is one of the things that I th I'm so sad that in Latter-day Saint culture that we have really gone away from the concept and the, and the symbolism of the cross. And I, I know all of the arguments for it, about, you know, the, you know, if Jesus, you know, if your brother was killed by a gun, would you wear a, a gun around your neck? I'm like, well, if it meant the same thing as what the cross meant to the early Christians, then yeah, absolutely I would. Well, Shiloh, these are popular arguments, right? I know that you've read a book on the subject. Oh, of course. You know, I know that you know a little bit more about the history uh, of, of this. Would you, are you going to go into that? Well, yes, of course, because, okay. you know, we address the kind of the pop answers to this because right. one of the things is, is that, well, you know, we don't want to fixate on his death. We want to fixate on his life and that the cross is a symbol of his death. And I get those arguments and, and I get the famous quote in the retort by, by President uh, Hinckley or Elder Hinckley at the time. And I get the popular, often quoted quote from, from President Hinckley, who's trying to get us to recognize that we're not focusing on his death and we're trying to focus on his life and that... As Christians, we're living the expression of Christ-like living. I get it. But at the same time, if we can make a moment beautiful with the sacrament when we walk in every Sunday, and we literally have a dead body under a shroud that we ritualistically eat its flesh and drink its blood and cannibalize our deity, if we can make that experience beautiful as it is, we certainly can make something beautiful out of the cross. 
That's why you're saying it this way. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, why are you saying it this way? So in that way, when we look here and we read about witness and martyrdom, the cross is literally the tree of martyrdom. It's the witness. That's the parallel is if we are so willing to take upon ourselves the name of Christ and to follow Christ until we see where he's walking towards. And then we, when we recognize that we're being willing, that we are being called to sacrifice for each other in temporal and finite things, the what Christ has suffered in infinite and eternal things, suddenly walking to the cross doesn't seem quite so pleasurable as it may have before. Yeah, I got to go at this point. Sorry. Just kidding. <laughs> that's right. It's like, you know, I, I was I was with you right up to this point, but that's where why I bring in Peter. That's why Peter is so so important here because at this we're like, all right, Jesus, you are leading us to this point where where else are we going to go? To this point where we're supposed to kneel down before our enemies and die? As the early Christians did, correct? As the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did? Right. Right. We're supposed to hide out, you know, uh, like cowards, like Moroni, like the early Christians in the catacombs, instead of enlisting in the, well, I guess our Moroni actually ended up without the army that he was a part of, didn't he? Right. <laughs> At any rate, you, you see my point. I do. Uh, and we covered it a lot in the war chapters uh, for anybody sure. to go back to it. In Jacob one eight, we only have two references of the cross where in the Book of Mormon of the cross being used in a symbolic way. And in fact, the symbolism of the cross as it was originally used by the Christians is actually invoked here in Jacob 1.8, where he says, Wherefore, I would to God that you would pers- to persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ, view his death, and suffer his cross, and bear the shame of the world. We're called to bear the cross. And we do that in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us a lot of ways how to do that. But as we come here into this this relationship here with the sacrament, we've talked about how, Christopher, before we recorded, you know, I said, you know, there's three trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's the tree of life. And then there's the tree of Calvary. Yes. And then you and then you said, yeah, well, the tree of the tree of Calvary and the tree of life are really the same tree. <laughs> they are, yeah. Yeah, the... the the Eastern Orthodox Christians, I mentioned this in the last, pod, the last podcast we recorded together, you know, they they viewed the cross, uh, sorry, the, the tree of life as a prefiguration of the cross. And we and they knew that they, they could, they believed that they could not eat from the tree until after Jesus was crucified and he is the fruit. And so now we're back to cannibalism. I'm trying not to be controversial. I'm really trying... <laughs> But this is our, but this is our religion, right? And but this is why I really liked what you said before about remembering things through taste. Right. That 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 way of expressing things and experiencing things was a very popular way of understanding it at the time. We experienced this through tasting, through the feasting. We've really lost the symbolism of what it meant to feast and to dine, and what that really meant in Jesus's day to sit down there with the apostles and to have this supper with them and to actually feast and a type of mass, we've really lost the symbolism of that. And so we've lost a lot of what is going on here. But because of what we've got here in these texts anyway, and at least what we were pulling in from chapter 3 and that great discussion with chapter 3, at least to invoke this idea that when we partake of the sacrament, that as we partake of the flesh and drink of the blood, the symbolism here is also of of eating from the tree of life. It's from the love of God. So as we've talked over and over again for the last hour and a half here, it's that 
when we come into those moments where we are truly experiencing the love of God, where we are really brought into that presence and that moment, when we allow ourselves to let go, to release the cares of the world, to release the pulls of the world, to release of those things that bring us anxiety, and we're allowed to simply be there through an emptying process to experience the love of God. Those are the moments that we are experiencing in our real life what the sacrament represents symbolically. When we actually experience tasting of the fruit of the tree of life. The love of God. The love of God. That's what it means in our daily life to participate in this moment. Yeah. When we go there, taking the sacrament is a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful experience. And especially through this COVID season, I've missed it a lot. Going to church and being with the saints and having that experience. But that experience is supposed to train our mind for another experience that we have in our daily life. And that is, are we truly seeking for and having experiences where we taste of the fruit of the tree of life? Because every day of our life, we're still eating from one of two trees. We're either eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which brings death, or eating from the knowledge of life, to the tree of life, which brings life. And it's the love of God. But to get to the tree of life, we've got to pass through cherubim first, which cuts away and is the, the, the emptying and the cutting away and the purging, the sanctifying. We've got to go through that to get to the love of God. Cherubim is not there to keep us out. He's there to help us come back in, but to come back in in a way that we truly understand and to know what it means to, to taste of the love of God. Let me see if I can bring some things together here. The, the love of God, what again, Dante said, is that which moves the sun and the other stars is being. We're back to I am that I am. Who, who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent me, right? This is what he says to Moses. It's being. You can be with God and be yourself. And that's the only way you can be yourself. Your true self is being in and through God. And it's in and through Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Again, that the word of God made flesh, that rod that we hold to, that leads us ultimately through the way. Again, Christ who gave the example of how to walk the path back to the presence of God past cherubim and the flaming sword, back to the tree of life, where, again, Christ is the fruit of the tree, the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That's a beautiful segue into chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, we have a, a little bit of a description into what the church life was like that Moroni saw. Now, I haven't been able to tell whether or not this was what church was like during Moroni's day, or whether or not this was church during just after Christ or through the period of fourth Nephi, I can't tell. I can't tell when were Moroni's trying to pinpoint this. There's a few places where he's talking directly from the apostle, the apostle or the disciples when he calls them in third Nephi, like he does in chapter two, but I can't exactly tell. I'm assuming in context with chapter two that this is talking about the people in America just after Christ. 
That would be my assumption too. And, you know, back to your, your question or point earlier about whether the people that are being uh, put to death for denying Christ are the Nephites, that is, who are being put to death for denying Christ are around at this time when Moroni is writing or whether that was earlier, as I said, it's in the past tense, right? Um, at least it could be, right? It really could be read both ways. It is ambiguous. Um, is there a church at this time? I mean, Moroni is all alone. Are there other Nephites? Is there a church? It's back to the same question again, right? It's a good question. And we don't have to have all the answers, right? We can we can practice some Zen Buddhism, like those uh, Buddhist monks you were talking about earlier. <laughs> and just sit with, sit with the ambiguity. I, I don't know if this fits here, but I'm going to tell this story, and, and you slash editors can decide. Because I forgot to share this earlier, you know, there's this there's this great story of uh, the Buddhist monk. Well, this is a true story of the Dalai Lama who was imprisoned for many years, uh, and he was asked, "Was he ever in danger? Did he ever feel in danger?" And he said, "Yes, he felt in danger of losing his compassion for his jailers. That's the only time he felt in danger." What a way to be! Yeah. What a way to live! In verse 6, I'm sorry, in chapter 6, as we've been talking, I've been thinking about this chapter, kind of leading up to it. And I think even from the time when we very first started recording and talking, Christopher, I'm, I may have changed a little bit in how I'm, I'm viewing this, seeing Moroni in a different way. And we first, we contextualized him for the first few minutes as this person who's not really good with maybe ambiguity. Some of what he's writing is ambiguous, but I see Moroni as more of a, a a black and white thinker. Right. He said he wasn't good at writing, so maybe his right. ambiguity in writing is unintentional. Is unintentional, correct. And in chapter six, he, there's very much a very, it seems very straightforward, but maybe I'm even changing my mind a little bit about Moroni now as I'm, as I'm talking here. So he starts off and he says, and now I speak concerning baptism for the elders and priests and the teachers were baptized and they were not baptized, save they brought forth fruit, meat that they were worthy of it. Now this, there are, there's so much baggage in our LDS culture about what worthiness means, because we often talk about it as a, as a metaphysical distinction. Riley and I did the whole podcast with Latter-day Contemplation. I suggest anyone go, go and look on it. It's with Latter-day Peace Studies, the links at uh, latterdaypeacestudies.org. But in this way, with our conversation right now, what I'm getting from how I'm taking verse one is that Moroni is talking about that kind of Mosiah 18 conversion before baptism kind of deal. Okay, let me just interrupt you, though. Which which episode was that? Episode, you know, I, I think it's episode six. It might, okay. Episode six or seven. Do you remember the title? On worthiness. Oh, okay, there you go. You can go find it. So on this on this verse one, I'm seeing that this is one of those conversion before baptism kind of things that they didn't. I mean, how else are you going to try to measure the fruit of being worthy, right? That but this is they're having this experience of God, and they're having this experience, and so I don't look at this as though they have a checklist gospel that they're checking these boxes off, so much as that baptism was the symbol of a conversion that happened before. Are you seeing this as, so what have you against being baptized? Exactly right. In, right. in the exact same way. Back to, that, back to that story from earlier in the Book of Mormon. Exactly. So it says, And neither did they receive unto baptism, save they first 
they came forth with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and witnessed unto the church that they had truly repented of all their sins. Again, they had truly repented of their sins, that they had had this conversion first, that there was this conversion that had happened, that they had had that Mosiah 6 experience. They'd had the Alma the Younger experience, that they were already in this moment. It, it wasn't the baptism first and then conversion. It was conversion and then baptism. And none were received into baptism, save they took upon them the name of Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end. And what a powerful way to live. And after they had been received into baptism and were wrought upon and cleansed by the power of the Holy Ghost. Not by the waters of baptism. That's right. I was just going to say the same thing. <laughs> it wasn't by the waters of baptism. They were cleansed by the Holy Ghost. By fire. The fire. That's right. By fire. Fire purifies. That's a symbol. So this is this is the this is the cherubim. This is cherubim and a flaming sword. This is the that cherubim that has to we have to pass by the not just the dividing asunder of the false self, but the purifying as well. And their names were taken in that they might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way and to keep their to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ. Now, I think in a lot of ways in our culture, we look at verse 1 as though they had to rely on their own merits, that this whole worthy thing was merit-based worthiness. Yeah. And if they're relying alone upon the merits of Christ, then we have to reinterpret verse 1, that this whole fruit meat that they were worthy of it was not merit-based. It was an experiential base. It, it was... We are simply being brought into the conversation with God, and they choose as a as a, as a symbolic representation of their conversion to be baptized. They're not out there looking for converts. It doesn't sound like they're not act looking for people just to baptize. What they're doing is that there is simply just a way of being. That if you have a choice to being, what have you against being baptized and being brought into this conversation? What's the reference on that again, Shiloh? On what? What have you against being baptized? This Mosiah eighteen. Mosiah eighteen, yeah. You know, going back to what you said about cherubim and the flaming sword being divided asunder, you know, the, the sword distinguishes, right, between what makes any kind of distinction, right? So what, what, I'm, what I'm going to suggest here is that what, what we mean by this being divided asunder is to divide the true from the false self, to distinguish between the true and the false self. And in that way, maybe paradox, seemingly paradoxically, what's being happened is What's, what's happening is not a division, but a unification, right? You're already divided, right? You're divided between the true and the false self. But with that sword distinguishing, the, the, the archetypal king judges, meaning he's going to judge between what is the true self and what is the false self. And with that false self being distinguished from the true self, you enter again into unity with Christ and with the Father. And that's the symbolism of going back past those uh, threshold guardians, the cherubim. Cherubim is plural, right? Past those threshold guardians that you usually see. I mentioned in, in the last podcast we recorded together, even in Japanese temples, for example, one with the mouth open, one with the mouth closed, one symbolizing ah, the other um, and we get this aum, this idea of the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, everything. We're going back from from a division into a multiplicity, into a duality at least, uh, between the, you know, the, the true self and the false self, 
back into unity of all things comprehended in one. All truth, all things in one. Back into the garden, back into paradise, back into the presence of God. Yeah. Wow, what a powerful thing. What a powerful message. Jesus has shown us the way, and he is... He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the fruit of the tree. He hangs on the tree. That's the tree of life. That's the love of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And he hung on the cross, on the tree. And he shows us the way. And he is the way and the truth and the life. And it's through him, through eating his flesh, through cannibalizing our God. I get it now, Shiloh. (laughs) I understand why you're saying this. We want to get your attention, right? The, the point here is to, to see God for who and what he is. I am. And what is he? He is love. He loves us in a way we, we cannot possibly comprehend. He's, and that's because we don't see ourselves for who we are. He sees us for who we are. And so he loves us as he loves himself. Isn't that what he's telling us to do? Love your neighbor as yourself because your neighbor is yourself. You are your neighbor. Your neighbor is you. He knows that. He wants to bring us back into unity with himself, with with our neighbor and with himself. I love in verse 5 where it says, The church did meet together oft to fast and to pray and to speak one with another concerning the welfare of their souls. And they did meet together oft to partake of the bread and the wine in the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these conversations like we're having, Christopher, these are the best conversations I ever have. The moments when when I get to talk with friends about the gospel of Christ, and there's those moments where we're like, yeah, that's it. Let's just sit with that for a minute. You know, there was a missionary, it was a, no, it was a temple prep class that I went to a year, maybe a year and a half ago. And I'm sitting there in the temple prep class and I don't even remember what was being talked about. I don't remember what was, what we were saying. There was only about five or six, I think there were six of us in the room. We were over at a member of the Bishop's Bricks house and there were just two or three things that were said. And all of a sudden everyone was silent for about three minutes and everyone just had their eyes down, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And everyone knew. We just sat there in this. We just sat there in the spirit of the room, and we let that love of God pour over us. And nobody wanted to talk. Nobody wanted to interrupt it. Yeah, why ruin the moment? Yeah, right? It was one of those moments, though, you just... And finally, there was this... Everybody had it at the same time. It was just... The moment was there, and now we get to talk again. Guys, this is your chance to to turn off the podcast. <laughs> the second chance. Don't listen to us. <laughs> listen to God. Listen to God. Be present to his presence within you. You know, I don't know how much of a silence, you know, how, how long of a silence you can leave in the podcast that you can not edit out, but... This podcast may call for a couple. And here, with, finally, with chapter 6, it concludes, And their meetings were conducted by the church after the manner of the workings of the Spirit, 
and by the power of the Holy Ghost. For as the power of the Holy Ghost led them whether to preach, or to exhort, or to pray, or to supplicate, or to sing, even so it was done. Amen. It's a powerful way to be. Now, Christopher, you, you had brought on at the beginning when we started talking about this, that this isn't really necessarily the way that we seem to conduct a lot of our church meetings, which seem a lot more regulated. You know, as we've talked about, we've also seen how there is this transition between making an oath first, making a covenant first, then living into it, versus having a conversion and then making covenants that reflect the, con- the prior conversion. I, just, I feel to keep reiterating the fact that Neither is right or wrong. Right. I think the key here to understand is, can we keep in remembrance that the ultimate point in either case is the conversion? I happen to think that based on the scriptures and the Book of Mormon tale, that conversion is a little bit more difficult when you take the oath first and then try to live into it, because then you then you end up symbol you taking the symbol as the thing in itself. Mm-hmm as opposed to that in which was done in remembrance of the conversion, the prior conversion. But if we can take those moments of going to and participating in the ordinances and then go out into our real lives and start to experience what those things symbolize, it doesn't matter what happens first. Right. I mean, you can taste God, as I, as I was saying, or you can enter into the covenant and then you get to taste God. Yeah, exactly right. But back to cannibalizing our God. That's right. <laughs> well, Christopher, do you have any final thoughts before before we're done this time? No, I, I, don't, I don't have anything to add. Amen. Well, thank you, everybody, for being with us. Thank you for going on the journey with us as we talked about this. I hope you felt a little bit about what we felt as well. And uh, that strengthens you this week. If you have any thoughts or comments, we always look for great feedback. On, uh, on what landed for you, on what has, has transpired with you, on, on maybe what was present for you in listening. And, and that, really, uh, that really helps us out to, to know what, what is landing for everyone. So until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you guys for listening.